1: Find out more by going to squared.com forward slash partnerships.
2: Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. This week, what to do with the world's billionaires. We'll be revisiting a timely chat on the topic on how so few can control so much. In recent weeks, one big financial story that keeps popping up again and again is Elon Musk, the richest man on the planet, and his ongoing bid to own the world's online public square, Twitter. Back in 2021, we debated what effect billionaires like Musk and his peers such as Jeff Bezos are having on the global economic picture, and why do so many of them want to go into space, rather than perhaps using their vast wealth to improve the planet we already have. Hosting the debate was Ben Chu. Economics editor for BBC's Newsnight programme. And here's Ben with more. Well, thank you so much, Connor. I'm very, very
3: pleased to be here. Now, before we begin this debate, I'm going to ask the audience to submit their pre debate vote because we want to get a sense of what your opinions are before we start. So, billionaires, what a fantastically timely topic for a debate. The first thing to say is that there are a lot more of them than there were last year. Forbes Forbes magazine's annual list of billionaires puts the total number worldwide at 2,755. That's 660 more than last year. And it also estimates their collective wealth now at around $13 trillion. That's up from $8 trillion a year earlier. There are so many billionaires that we're even sending them into space to make room here on Earth. Jeff Bezos, as you know, went up yesterday briefly uh, and that's followed Richard Branson's trip nine days earlier. So very entertaining, no doubt. But is it edifying? Is it perhaps a waste of resources on billionaire vanity projects? Uh, And that leads to a bigger question. Does the existence of any billionaire, as a billionaire, of course, let alone 2,000 of them, represent, as some have argued, an economic policy failure? Is it a sign of economic dysfunction, namely a lack of competition in markets, that any single individual can get that rich? Does it signify economies becoming increasingly saturated with economic rent-extracting behaviour, meaning people who take wealth from others rather than creating it for the community? And does the inequality so vividly symbolised by the billionaire class perhaps serve to stifle wider economic growth? Or, on the other hand, is the billionaire boom a reflection of the opposite? Does it reflect the increasing innovation and dynamism in our economy? Does the proliferation of billionaires represent the brilliance Of modern entrepreneurs that they're able to build such leviathans like amazon google uh, and microsoft and all the rest does it reflect the risk-taking and drive of people like elon musk do the riches of these individuals serve to inspire and incentivize others to do similarly brilliant things should we leave them alone and indeed wish them happy travels to the stars or wherever else they want to go that's the theme of tonight's debate So, but let's get the pre-vote results. And for the motion that we should abolish billionaires, it is 56-4. So that wins. Against the motion that we should abolish billionaires, 11%. So that's losing, Ryan. (laughs) Undecided, 33%. So there are votes to to play for here. So now let's get going. Um, Our speaker for the motion... I'm very pleased to announce is Lindsay McGoy. She is Professor of Sociology and Director of the Centre for Economic Sociology and Innovation at the University of Essex. She's the author of two books, No Such Thing as a Free Gift, The Gates Foundation and The Power of Philanthropy, and most recently, The Unknowers, How Strategic Ignorance Rules the World. She's written for the New York Times and The Guardian on why billionaires are harmful for society. So, Lindsay, your six minutes, take it away.
0: Thank you. A rat done bit my sister Nell with Whitey on the moon. Her face and arms began to swell and Whitey's on the moon. I can't pay no doctor bill, but Whitey's on the moon. Ten years from now. I'll be paying still while Whitey's on the moon. When the great American poet and musician Gil Scott Heron wrote those words in 1970, 50 years ago now, inequality in the United States was bad, but it was not nearly as bad as it is today. The U.S. and other countries, such as the U.K., had experienced unprecedented narrowing of wealth gaps over the mid-20th century. How? Through policies that are the same ones as the ones called for by the motion today. Through abolishing the entitlements that wealthy millionaires had until citizens and their governments said, we will no longer be servile to wealth plutocrats. And I suspect that from my opponent, you might hear a similar phrase, abolish wealth, but with a different emphasis. The idea of abolition might be condemned as an act of violence. It will be seen like an unfair overstretch of government. The very notion seems like an attack on billionaire freedom to make money however they want, regardless of the cost to others to gift it however they want, to bequeath it however they want, to use their power to reinforce the power of their heirs until you get to the stage where 40% of all wealth in a nation like the United States is inherited wealth, just Mm -hmm. as it is today. A nation where, much like in the UK, poverty is rising, And life expectancy is declining in many regions. A nation where a billionaire like Jeff Bezos, the richest man in the world, can pay zero federal income tax. And not only does he rarely pay any tax, but in 2011, his tax burden was so low that he was eligible for a $4,000 child tax credit. And he took it. Of course he took it. Just like he is taking from the workers, his workers, their right to organize for better livelihoods. Just like he took tax dollars to boost himself into space. Good thing he did claim that child credit when you think about it, though, because surely he needed it for, say, food, fuel to get to space, because certainly it wasn't his own ingenuity or know-how getting him there. The technology was already funded by democratic governments, the same governments that my opponent and his friends at the Cato Institute think are so useless. And you know what? Lately, they're right. Lately, governments have been useless at the key criterion, the baseline stipulation that enlightenment thinkers like Adam Smith saw as the fundamental duty of a civilized and a accountable government, the ability to make the rich pay their fair share. Smith makes this point in Wealth of Nations, where he sharply criticizes tax systems in earlier feudal times, because as he saw it, they let the rich get away with gross abuses of power. Back then, he writes to quote, the sovereign was obliged to content himself with taxing those who were too weak to refuse taxation, like the rich did. Only a barbaric Pre-civilized society, he pointed out, places the biggest proportionate burden on a society's weakest groups while allowing the rich to thumb their noses at governments. Which is why it's kind of funny when people from the Cato Institute uphold Smith to talk about, say, market freedom. For Smith, true freedom meant an end to the barbaric privileges and gross impunity of the excessively rich. And how do you end those privileges? Simple. You abolish them. You abolish billionaire power, which is what this motion calls for. Just like it was once necessary to rein in the absolute power of feudal monarchs and overlords to abolish their control over the people. We must abolish the power of economic Overlords today, continued civilization, this is an existential threat. Continued civilization and enlightenment depend on it. Thank you.
3: Excellent. Thank you very much, Lindsay. Um, that was slightly under time, actually, I'm pleased to say. Our speaker against the motion is Ryan Bourne, the R. Evan Scharf Chair for the Public Understanding of Economics at the Cato Institute. He's a regular public commentator on the economy and author of an excellent book, Economics in One Virus, An Introduction to Economic Reasoning Through COVID-19, which was recently named a Financial Times summer read for 2021. So now, Ryan, over to you for your six minutes.
4: Thank you so much to Ben and to Intelligence Square for the opportunity to debate this motion. Abolish billionaires. I mean, you've got to admire the candidness of that title relative to the sorts of technocratic things I usually debate. And I really do understand the instinct here, because I used to agree with the professor. You see Jeff Bezos's massive new mansion here in DC, or Richard Branson and him firing themselves into space. Then you read about poverty and misery and homeless people worldwide. And I think it's really seductively easy to make that intellectual leap, that the poverty of the poor must in some way be a consequence of the wealth of the rich, or at the very least, that we of course, in the form of government, usually could simply take from the wealthy and spend that money better. And it's true. If you look at any list of global billionaires, some did make their fortunes from the sorts of unjust cronyism that Adam Smith railed against. Whether it's Carlos Slim and the Mexican telecoms fortune, the Russian oligarchs, or even Elon Musk getting states to compete to offer Tesla special tax breaks. that sort of crony capitalism governments granting privileges like restrictive intellectual property or or even subsidies, that does push some people's wealth up and make some people billionaires. That sort of deck tilting by government makes us poorer. It diverts resources to unproductive ventures. It encourages lobbying. And I oppose it in all its forms, and I spend much of my time at Cato arguing against it. But the truth is, the majority of billionaires in the US and UK today didn't get wealthy from government favours. Most, in fact, got extremely rich by providing the ideas, leadership or capital for products that we as customers vote with our wallets to buy because we value them. WhatsApp founders Brian Acton and Jason Combe founded a company in a really globally competitive instant messaging industry. They grew the business. It's now two and a half billion people in over 180 countries. The WhatsApp app generates 5 to $10 billion a year in annual revenue. So when those founders sold up to Facebook, they were, of course, rewarded with a cool combined $15 billion for their innovation. They didn't rent-seek. Their apparent crime, deserving of abolition, was just to create a trusted product that slashed the cost dramatically for millions of people around the world to stay in contact with their loved ones. And as economist William Nordhaus has said of entrepreneurs who deliver similar transformative innovation. Their riches might look huge in absolute terms but that's a mere slither of the huge consumer value they created. So why should their wealth be now plundered and treated as if they're the same as Carlos Slim or a Russian oligarch? How can we talk about billionaires as if they're a common class of people ignoring how those individuals made their money? And if you think I'm cherry-picking an example on the source of billionaire wealth, the wealthiest 20 people in the world Right now includes those associated with founding Amazon, Google, Microsoft, Walmart, Facebook, Zara and Nike. In Britain, it's Dyson, Ineos, Home Bargains. The vast majority of billionaires' wealth remains in productive business assets. Just 2% is in personal property like houses and yachts. So what would happen if we abolish billionaires? Well, clearly one effect would be we disincentivize the innovation that got people like this rich in the first place. Now, nobody says that wealth is the only motivator for entrepreneurs, and I can't get in their heads. But the desire to have billions in funds, whether it's to keep score, to reinvest, uh, to provide for your heirs or even to play global saviour, clearly does matter to some business people. And as the economist Charles Jones has pointed out, we'd only need that sort of wealth confiscation or very high taxes to deter a very few major innovations by reducing that uh, payoff to be really socially destructive. And given this wealth is in productive business assets, what would taxing it or taking it away do? Force them to sell their companies? Encourage them to give wealth away to political interest groups with actual power? Incentivise blowing it on consumption like space races that people apparently dislike? And for what benefit when we get the revenue? More money for Boris Johnson to spend on royal yachts or dodgy bridges in the north? For context, confiscating Jeff Bezos' entire wealth would fund the US federal government for just 11 days. Who do you even think would use those billions to enrich your lives more through reinvestment or philanthropy? Business people like Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates or politicians like Boris Johnson and Donald Trump? To ask the question, I think, is to answer it. Now, at this stage, somebody usually says, put all that aside, but nobody deserves a billion dollars. So let's consider a thought experiment. Let's imagine a world where everyone was equally productive, earned the same income, paid the same taxes. There was perfect equality. Suddenly, one person in that society comes up with a brilliant idea for an appliance that could transform your life by, say, cleaning your house automatically with no human input whenever it got dirty. So brilliant a product, in fact, that everybody in the world wants one and buys one. As a result of that innovation the owner, the founder of that company, would probably end up a comfortable billionaire. What message would we send by then confiscating this wealth and redistributing it to maintain equality? I contend that most billionaires do make their money through this sort of honest value creation, that disincentivizing that process is a bad idea, and that actually letting markets, not governments and not the professor, allocate wealth has coincided with the huge enrichment of society in the past two centuries. So yes, let's discuss, let's agree on removing unfair government favours that enrich the wealthy. But abolishing all billionaires by plunder, that's a really foolish proposition. Fantastic.
3: Well, that was exactly on time. So well done. Now, uh, that was brilliant, Ryan. So uh, And Lindsay as well. Now, we're going to turn to our audience questions. So just a reminder, if you'd like to submit yours, then please do. Uh, The instructions to do so underneath the video screen, you can see a tab that says ask a question. Click on that and a text box will drop down. Type your question into the box. And if you want your name to be mentioned, uh, type it in as well. Click send and be patient. There are a lot of questions to get through. I just want to kick off before I get to those, though, because I was quite interested, first of all, with you, Lindsay, that you very subtly changed or seemed to change the proposition from abolish billionaires to abolish billionaire power. And I wonder, would you be happy with billionaires on this planet if they had, if they didn't have the political power that they have, is that the key distinction that you would make, or is it the wealth itself? Are they inseparable?
0: The only way to remove their power is to remove their wealth. So I stand in favor of both propositions: to abolish billionaires, to um, disallow the capacity for any individuals to accrue such excess of wealth, and that is the sole way that we can abolish their power.
3: Okay. And Ryan, I want to ask a question to you, because interestingly, you made a distinction between billionaires whose fortunes are built on rent extraction, on crony capitalism, and the rest. And you uh, argued that actually most billionaires don't get their wealth from rent extraction. But you are, aren't you implicitly uh, accepting that it is an empirical question? And if it could be proved or demonstrated that it was the other way around that actually quite a lot of these guys, maybe not all, but quite a lot do get it from those crony capitalism sources that you, you would be on the other side. So isn't the question, aren't, isn't the proposition that you're opposing here or you're agreeing with the proposition abol- abolish crony billionaires? Would you be on? Would you be in favor of that if it was presented in that way?
4: Well, I think you want to treat the underlying disease and not the symptoms. So I would never be in favour of anything that was as broad brush as abolish billionaires when uh, the motion that I would support would be something along the lines of abolish unfair government deck tilting that leads to the enrichment of certain individuals. And that's a very, very different proposition. I'd just like to make one point in regard to, to politics, though, because we've heard a lot about billionaire power in politics. I think there's two crucial points here. First of all, there's no billionaire worldview. You know, George Soros, Tom Steyer, other liberal billionaires are quite often in hammer and tongs political battles with Charles Koch and Sheldon Adelson and other conservative and you know libertarian billionaires in in politics. And I think it's really wrong or misguided to to talk about billionaires as if they have shared interests. The second point, though, is that to the extent that the average views of the sur- of the super wealthy do differ from the rest of the population. A study by Larry Bartles has tended to find that, on average, they tend to be much more worried about budget deficits, much more open to immigration, and more in favour of shrinking age-related spending programmes. Well, how's that working out for them? We're moving in the opposite direction to all of, on all of those things, and uh, Amazon and uh, other major tech owners are being dragged through the courts in antitrust cases. If they've got so much political power,
3: where is it? Okay, now let's go to audience questioned. Uh, There's one here for Lindsay, which is about the practicalities of the uh, proposition you're you're, um, endorsing. And the question is, how do you abolish billionaires? Is it through a maximum wage? Is it through wealth taxes? Just talk us through how you see this actually uh, being implemented.
0: Sure. I think two of the best proposals are, yes, a wealth tax. And that does need to be implemented and implemented at the global level. And certainly The fact that we can agree different global trade rules through organizations like the World Trade Organization means that it is feasible. But first of all, you have to really challenge this view that somehow other countries have oligarchs. I think it was Russian oligarchs that Ryan mentioned and Carlos Slim. So it's interesting to me that the frontier exploitation always stops right at the American border, where suddenly then you just sort of leap over the border and any level of exploitation or cronyism just sort of switches and you've ceased to be an oligarch, now you're an entrepreneur, that great defining aspect of supposed American exceptionalism. And that's simply a myth. It's completely untrue. Places like the Cato Institute and Heritage uh, Foundation want us to believe that. And it, it's, it's not true. Ryan's point that rent seeking doesn't exist in um, nations like the United Kingdom and the U.S. is, is, is a false one. And um, there's increased interest in what Ben was speaking about, which is to try to measure this level of rent-seeking. Because contrary to the 19th century, when economists like Ricardo and Smith uh, in the early 18th century before then were interested in rent-seeking from land, from all different types of monopolistic holdings, mm. we see studying this as extensively in the 20th century, so we don't even know exactly. Um, how far or in what ways we can measure it more effectively, but economists do want it measured more, as as Ben's suggesting. And that can then lead you to get at the the type of policies the person who asked this great question is pointing to. And I think maximum wages and also within companies uh, ratios and proportionality between what low-paid workers earn and CEOs earn and executive individuals earn are one of the best approaches to this. So both wealth taxes and payment ratios.
3: Yeah, but Lindsay, let me just very briefly follow up on that, because we had an independent wealth commission here in the UK, which looked at this question. It was made up for people by no means hostile to wealth taxes. And they concluded it was just too practically difficult to do an annual recurring wealth tax because of the nature of people's assets. Isn't that a fundamental challenge to the idea of a, of a wealth tax?
0: I think if we're capable of helping Bezos get to outer space, we are capable of overcoming the practicality of taxation. And this really gets back to the Adam Smith point that I quoted, where he said a real characteristic of feudalism is the incapacity to make the most powerful people pay. And so you are always burdening the most weak and marginalized people in society and a mark of civility a mark of, civilization of the is the capacity to have fair taxation and to not let the richest people escape taxes just because they've got the money to do so.
3: OK, Ryan, let's, uh, we've got a question for you here, and I'm going to combine it with another question. But the, the question is, how much of a billionaire's wealth is a result of their, quote, brilliant invention? And how much is from the exploitation of their workers? Another question asked, uh, how much is it due to public subsidy? You know, we've talked, to, well, we've heard about Apple's innovations being uh, on the back of public investment and the uh, the question i asked, even bezos thanks amazon workers for paying for his space travel didn't didn't that stick in your craw slightly because they were doing no such thing they were buying amazon services they weren't using it to try and help him get into space were they
4: no i don't think so they were buying amazon services and jeff bezos's primary contribution to social well-being has been providing lower cost products, um, easily available, especially during a time of a pandemic to millions and millions of people around the world. I think that's where he generates his social value. On the public investment point, yeah, of course, everybody benefits to an extent of the provision of real public goods. We can argue about what those public goods are. But the interesting thing is that over the past 30 to 40 years, provision of genuine public goods by government hasn't increased at all. Almost all the, the growth of government has been in fiscal transfers, so that doesn't explain if there is supposedly so much more rent seeking now. Why that rent seeking has increased? One argument might be that as we become richer as a society, as the demands on on governments grow, and as more resources are sucked in uh, to government and into Washington D.C. in particular, and we've got much less power at the at the state level over time, actually, it becomes a, a bit easier to, to, to rent seek. And i just mention one point in retort to something that uh, Professor McGuire said, which is that in my remarks I did actually mention some of the favours that Elon Musk gets from trying to get states to play off each other in terms of the explicit subsidies for Tesla. So I'm not pretending that no rent-seeking uh, exists in the US. We have extensive farm subsidies that make some farmers uh, multimillionaires, incredibly rich, I would scrap those as well. And the Cato Institute spends a fair amount of time arguing against these policies that genuinely distort the playing field, all the while wh- why these, uh, these, these uh, left-wing individuals in the Democrat Party who want wealth taxes advocate for things like industrial policies, which, which by definition are predicated on uh, spraying subsidies around their favoured
2: industries. promo code, Squared, to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting That's why over thirty-seven thousand companies have already made the move, and now, by popular demand, Netsuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com/squared. That's netsuite.com/squared. Netsuite.com/squared.
3: Ryan, let me ask you about the sort of the philanthropic question, which is attached to this debate, the the power that billionaires have through the tax code, because then they use their their huge wealth to go go on their own favoured projects, which might be good, or they might be bad. But is it does it not concern you as it does many people that they're effectively being given this power to to promote their own choices and their own causes, which may not fit with what most of the the population wants is that is that not a concern
4: well, I probably abolish the charitable deduction um, altogether, but let's think about this logically let's suppose we were introduced to introduce a net wealth tax individual with a big block of wealth then has three potential things that he can do he can reinvest that money into his business and uh, into productive business assets to create jobs create products that that people might or might not want to buy. He can choose to blow that on near-term consumption, buy more property or buy more yachts, or he can plough that money into tax-exempt things like charities and giving it to his favoured political causes, to institute, you know, organizations on everything from the NRA through to trade unions that actually do have quite extensive political power. So, what would a, a wealth tax encourage? Actually, it would encourage more conspicuous consumption, and it would encourage more in the way of uh, political and charitable giving, which the professor seems to oppose. So I'm not entirely sure how you square that with the demands for a wealth tax.
3: Okay, so Lindsay, we've got a question here, which I I want to throw to you, because it's about political economy of your proposal. And it says, is a preference for democratic control of capital, which you've advocated rather than private billionaire control, contingent on having more effective political leaders. And I suppose the, 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 what it's referring to is that people like Richard Branson, people like Elon Musk have a kind of authority and credibility that often political leaders don't have. Isn't that um, part of the thing that you would have to address to to uh, be successful in abolishing billionaires? That Actually, they're pretty popular.
0: Whether their popularity comes from excessive media coverage is hard to say. And I, I hate to throw that back at, say, um, the BBC or or elsewhere that's sort of showered endless hours of attention to this sort of interesting sort of space battle that's being currently fought between the billionaires is a question, because are they popular? It seems to me their popularity seems to be declining the more that people see them on their screens and realise that they spend so much time in, you know, wasting fossil fuels on egotistical battles to see who can be the most to spend the most hours in space. So I think their popularity, that's a—that's in dispute right now. And I think it's because people sense that inequality has become just so massive a problem that it needs to be addressed. And in order to address it practically, we need to get political will to do so. And that gets back to your excellent question, Ben, and uh, Mr. Boren's really, I think, important points about we need to have trust in government to ensure that governments won't be spending money or subsidies partially in order to have a more equitable society. But it's a chicken and egg scenario. Did people start losing faith in government and politicians, the richer that some people were able to essentially buy favours? Or was the problem that um, government stopped really understanding the root causes of inequality and let different sectors be basically unleashed from effective regulations? And I think it's a mixture of both. So the inequality that we've seen really grow over the past 30 years started in the 80s, and it started with massive deregulations of the financial sector. We need to look at things like not letting speculative actors really gouge and and play with uh, nations' currencies in a way that really leads to destabling conditions for people in the most marginalized and impoverished places in the world. But it can be done. It has been done. We had higher taxes in the mid-century, and this was incredibly effective at compressing wealth levels And it wasn't fully effective. There were still groups that were very much left out from, say, uh, Franklin Delano uh, Roosevelt's um, FDR's effort to sort of make sure that the New Deal was equitably distributed. He still did not do enough to, say, um, really support um, uh, black sharecroppers, for example, who had temporary jobs that were left out of certain provisions because of the nature of those jobs. So the key thing, and part of the reason was that he was beholden to sort of Dixie Southerner wealthy interests. So even some of the most proactive progressive politicians are sometimes too beholden to wealthy people. But that, we can't stop that by just trying to fix the problem in government. We have to fix the fact that some people have too much wealth and can engage in excessive lobbying activities, which is a type of rent-seeking. So you can't reduce rent-seeking unless you attack the problem of lobbying by the wealthy. And it's not a market fix. It's a government fix that needs to take place. Could I come
4: back on that? Sure. Go ahead, Ryan. Well, I spent a fair bit of time with politicians when I was in the UK. And believe me, you don't need to be a billionaire to get their attention. They're incredibly cheap dates. And I, I just, I can't think of any instance through history where somebody through losing their wealth over time by making bad investment decisions or whatever, has had such a fall from grace in terms of being able to access politicians that we've seen a fundamental change in economic policy. And I think even if you were to have the sorts of wealth tax uh, that, that the professor has advocated, a lot of these people who are currently billionaires, would still be extremely rich. And and as I say, you don't have to have that many millions to have the attention of of politicians. And I don't really see what the marginal impact of going from $999,999,999 to a billion has in terms of an individual's political impact.
3: Okay. We've got a question uh, sort of following on from that for you, Ryan. It's from Mark in Devon, and he wants to know how billionaires, tell us how billionaires do influence democracy and distort elections with lobbying and controlling media. He wants you to spell it out, the
4: process. Well, I'm not the one making that proposition, so it's incredibly hard for me to do so. But let me give you an example of how they're unable to control democracy in the way that they would like, and that is Mayor Bloomberg's presidential campaign. He had, you know, endless funds to plough into it and was quite prepared to do so, but he crashed and burned. And there's a simple kind of explanation for that, which is that voters didn't want to vote for him. And no matter how many ads he bought, uh, he found that incredibly difficult. Of course, we don't like to admit it, but Hillary Clinton spent vastly more on her presidential campaign than Donald Trump as well. So whatever you think about Donald Trump as an individual, this idea that there's a surefire link between money and politics... I'm afraid it is just not, no, it would be churlish to suggest that people with money didn't have on the margin more influence than the the average uh, voter. But I would politely suggest that actually economic interest groups that can club together, that can provide both votes and money to politicians are much more powerful within the political system than some of these individual billionaires. As I say, as you can see from the fact that Amazon's Uh, founder Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg and and Facebook and Bill Gates through the 90s are currently being dragged through the courts as Joe Biden has appointed a whole bunch of antitrust lawyers and antitrust intellectuals who want to completely cut those businesses down to size. If these guys had full control over the political system, as has been alluded to, how how does one explain these current trends in politics that we're seeing? Okay.
3: Uh, Lindsay, we've got a question for you. And it says, do you not think that Bill Gates shows that billionaires can do a lot of good with their wealth? Obviously, this isn't coming in the context of the pandemic. He had invested quite a lot of his own money in vaccines beforehand. Isn't isn't that an example of where billionaire wealth can combine with public authorities and public money to do quite a lot of good in the world?
0: I think people can be well-motivated. And Mr. Gates has spent some of the funds at his foundation towards vaccine development. But the accessibility of those vaccines in global poor regions is very, very poor right now. And that's partly because he, unlike people like Biden, unlike people like the head of the WHO, has never supported a waiver on patent protections that would enable vaccines to be distributed more widely. His foundation finally did concede that a waiver might be good, although he has personally not himself placed his support behind it, only after an eventual concession by the head of the US government. So this brings me back to sort of Ryan's point, because I'm a little bit surprised by his argument, if I understand it correctly. He is saying that he doesn't support crony capitalism, he supports competitive capitalism, but he's been criticizing the efforts to sort of apply antitrust laws to some of the monopoly positions of places like Microsoft or Amazon. So it does seem to me that sometimes places like the Cato Institute say that they want more competition, but then they oppose any legal efforts to make it actually happen. So they only like it when the law is usually is used to enforce the ability of people like uh, Jeff Bezos to plunder his own workers while... They're never really in favour of this word plunder when it comes to the redistribution that needs to happen in order to have a fairer society.
3: Ryan, in the similar, similar territory, we've got a question that asks you, what evidence do you have that innovation would stop if there was an earnings cap affecting uh, billionaires and rich people, and I want to link this to something that you were saying in your opening remarks about the motivator effect of earning, you know, having billions of pounds of wealth, it's pretty hard to prove, isn't it, that that is the key factor, which is making entrepreneurs that we all want to, to come up with these innovations and drive wealth creation is the key factor. As Lindsay was saying in her remarks, we did have a regime earlier in the century, which was much more a tax regime, which uh, which, which taxed wealth much more highly. And we still had innovations in that era. So what, how can you say definitively that, that a billionaire tax would have this, you know, wealth tax would have this damaging
4: effect? Well, I can't say definitively, but you either believe financial incentives matter, or you don't, I'm afraid. And I I do think it's misguided to compare the period immediately after World War Two with today. And we're in a much more kind of globalized economy now. What does that mean? Well, uh, earlier on, somebody asked the question about whether CEOs, these founders are more talented than before, more deserving. I would try and echo Friedrich Hayek here and say markets don't allocate resources according to desert or pure merit if they did and uh, it, you know if, if given the results we have they they clearly don't do that a lot for some of the reasons that we've talked about why are CEOs paid much more than average employees now than they were 30 to 40 years ago because even though that their relative talent might not have gone up substantially the stakes in a globalized economy are that much higher companies are competing in in much larger global markets. So decisions that CEOs do make are more uh, consequential than they are before. And there's been good academic evidence to bear this out. If you look at the impact of CEO resignations, deaths, when those happen in the the day afterwards, the 30-day period afterwards, uh, they tend to have big impacts on a company's uh, stock price, particularly if they're unexpected, of course. And that shock impact has actually grown over the past 30 to 40 years. Now, somebody might come back to me and say, well, hang on, but also employees, are ordinary employees are part of this global marketplace too. So why hasn't their pay uh, gone up in the same way? Well, the answer there, I think, is that CEOs, their, their impact on a company tends to be multiplicative, whereas the impact of an employee is additional. Now, what do I mean by that? The CEO has the power to completely uh, try and change corporate culture in some ways, to advocate for trying out a completely new product line in a way that an individual employee doesn't. And if CEOs get those decisions wrong, as the movements in stock prices show us when CEOs move, it can lead to billions and billions and billions of dollars or pounds being lost or gained to a company's value. So, you know, I'm not pretending that all CEOs, are uh, CEO pay, founder pay, is purely meritocratic. It's also a feature of the supply and demand features of a modern dynamic economy too.
3: So, Ryan, we've had a question from someone who says they were from Germany and born in the early 70s, and they are open on this question. So this is the uh, audience member that you both need Swing to meet. <laughs> uh, and it, So he says he's sitting in the middle of the headline question. But the point he says, most of today's billionaires have either inherited their wealth or benefited from a post-war period with far higher levels of social equality. Now, I, I think you dispute the idea that most have inherited their wealth. But I, it's interesting that you have uh, made a couple of concessions, it seems to me. You've, uh, you've talked about you would get rid of the charitable deduction and that you, are, uh, you would be fa- in favour of going after rent-extracting billionaires. But what about inheritance? Because this goes back to your point about motivations. If someone inherits billions, and there are people on the rich list who do inherit – would you be in favour of disinheriting them? Because that surely can't motivate them to do any, you know, once they've got it, they can't be motivated to get it.
4: That's true. But the ability to pass on a fortune to your children can be a motivator. But I just think this is a, a, a overblown issue, to be honest. If you look at the Forbes 400 list, the 400 richest uh, Americans. The proportion that are self-made has actually gone up from forty percent in 1982 to sixty-nine percent today. The Sunday Times Rich List: ninety-four percent of Britain's uh, richest thousand people were self-made, including you know entrepreneurs like Richard Branson, James Dyson. By my count, and um, you know I, I went through this yesterday. If you look at the annual list of the Forbes 400. There's just 21 people who were on it in 1982 who were still on it in in the most recent list. And if you look at those 400 people again, somebody who did some work on this a few years ago found just 69 of them uh, 30 years later were people that inherited money from people on that original list. So I just think that this kind of whole... Hickety argument that there's this huge dynastic wealth accumulation problem is a bit of a myth. And the second reason I think that, aside from looking at the pure numbers, is that if you actually look at the the growth in wealth or the change in wealth between those on the list who actually inherited it and those who didn't, uh, the self-made ones see, appear to see much, much higher returns on their investments than uh, the people who inherited it. So I think over time that problem kind of works itself out in a du- so long as so long as and this is where I do concede so long as we have an open dynamic competitive economy.
3: Maybe we can go to Ryan. Question is: Why do you think there are so few women billionaires? Are they not just as innovative as
4: men? I don't think there's any reason why there shouldn't be more women billionaires. I think partly at the moment it's a reflection of historic educational inequalities that one hopes will work themselves out over time. There is a big open question, I think, as to the extent to which um, preferences or social expectations about raising families has has shaped a willingness or ability to work the extortionate hours that many founders of companies and top entrepreneurs who who tend to see their business as a vocation, uh, how many hours they work. I haven't looked at that question in in detail, so I don't have um, a better answer than that, I'm afraid. But I think there's huge female talent out there. And I see no reason over the next generation why we won't see a huge growth in the number of uh, female billionaires around the world.
3: Now, Lindsay, we've had a couple more practical challenges to your position. One of the audience members is asking Um, How have measures to implement wealth taxes by other countries fared in the past? Because France had a wealth tax and had to retract it. And that's an argument a lot of people use for saying that it's simply not practical to tax wealth in the way that you would advocate in the modern global economy. Um, And there's another question which talks about, um, if we're not going, if, um, is loopholes, wouldn't these very innovative billionaires effectively just find ways to shift their money and evade, the tax net. We don't have a global government. That's just a reality. We're probably, well, we're almost certainly not going to get one. How do you get around those practical issues?
0: You know, the, the audience questions are so dynamic and important. And I just want to get back to this point of globalization, because Ryan has suggested that we live in a sort of unprecedentedly globalized world. I think that's a myth. When you have the first example the transatlantic slave trade there was global interconnections. There was a need to try for some nations to take a moral lead in abolishing the type of gross exploitation and brutality that underpin that system. And today, we do have a globalized world, but we do also have precedents for ways that through global compacts and different organizations that are responsive to member states that aren't a global government, but that have restrictions on the ability of different powerful governments to exploit other nations, those... Um, those, those governance arrangements do exist in places like the United Nations and the World Trade Organization. And we could steer and try to place citizen pressure on governments to reach the type of global agreement that is needed to ensure that these huge winding wealth gaps cease to place such a burden on people's children, on your neighbors, on the future. We don't want to live in a world where wealth is hoarded in so few hands while so much poverty Increases both in wealthy nations and inequality is growing in almost every single nation today, including some of the emerging economies, emerging powerhouses like China and India. And this is leading to a world where we are really regressing to the type of feudal, anti-democratic types of governance systems that we fought so hard to to abolish and to overcome. And what we what is needed is market democracy to apply the same constraints that were once put on monarchs and feudals to the market to ensure that the wealth that is made in such concentrated ways in that global system begins to be better distributed and is not just held in so many few hands and so many few companies that have very monopolistic uh, structures and patterns underpinning them. There was a great article today or this in the past month in The Guardian on just how monopolistic the food system is in the United States, for example. So when Ryan says he's in favour of a competitive economy, it just doesn't square with the facts of just how monopolistic our industries have become.
3: Right. Ryan shaking his head there, but we have come to that moment. You're going to get your plan to respond, Ryan, because it's summing up time. So two minutes from you responding to that and also giving your final argument.
4: Well, thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you to Intelligence Squared. That was extremely fun uh, so far. But I hope when... Deciding your vote tonight, you've seen enough to recognise the real pig in a poke you're being asked to support. Because not only did my opponent fail to explain how billionaires would be abolished without significant damage to the economy, I suspect because that's an impossible task, but I think she really failed to explain what the lasting effects would be of living in a society in which people were effectively banned from getting super rich even if they created fantastic, innovative products that we decide we want and need because we value them highly. I'd suggest politely you've been presented with two very different pictures and visions of the world tonight. One, mine, which um, you you might not be surprised to think I think represents reality, which acknowledges the power of economic growth and the fact that over the past two centuries things have been getting much better and which acknowledges that poverty is not what needs to be explained when you look at human history, uh, its wealth, and which has a theory and evidence to show, I believe, that billionaire wealth comes primarily from creating value for us. On the other hand, you've got the professor's vision, which I think is a doom and gloom prospectus, which is hostile to uh, billionaire innovation, no matter what the source of that wealth is, and it's predicated, I'm afraid, on wealth being somewhat of a zero-sum game, an outcome which I think doesn't bear witness to the facts of the world we live in, but is probably something that would result if the policies that the professor proposes were implemented. Now, we hear a lot these days about populism of the dangers of telling the people that their misfortunes or hardships are the result of some malevolent other, some enemy within, that if only these people went away or were exterminated or plundered, all would be well. Well, I'd just again politely suggest that this motion is populism on speed. As you vote, remember that an affirmative for this motion would not be voting to abolish the activities that made people rich unfairly. The motion is voting to abolish billionaires entirely. I urge you tonight to reject this motion, not because every billionaire is a pillar of morality, but because of the immorality and absurdity of such a crude proposal to abolish all of them. Excellent. Thank you so much, Ryan.
3: Now over to you, Lindsay, for your 2-minute closing argument. Thank
0: you. So, well, I think you can learn a lot from people across the ideological spectrum, we can learn things from Thinkers like Hayek, he's someone I read a lot, for example. We can learn things from socialist thinkers. I want to end with a, first with a brief quote by a, a liberal thinker, Isaiah Berlin, who once said, total freedom for the wolves means death for the sheep. And what he meant by that is that unless you constrain some of the predators in society who exploit and live off the exploitation of the livelihoods of others then you have essentially brutality and a bloodbath and the type of preventable deaths that we're seeing at the scale of something like the COVID pandemic today, where if only we actually restricted the ability of some corporations to exclusively produce vaccines, for example, enriching their CEO billionaire owners in many instances, we would have more access to life-saving vaccines. So I think it's interesting, for example, that my opponent, Mr. Bourne, suggested that there's something hostile in the motion to abolish billionaires. And I, I can see how that might be the perception. It's a strong stance. It's an aggressive stance. And it almost has a, 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 a level of abruptness or hostility to it. He used the word hostility specifically, I think. But that hostility and violence is already happening. It is happening in the violent dispossession of workers and their livelihoods by Mr. Bezos and his pals. It's happening in the violence of being fired for a job, for trying to organize a union to fight against poverty wages. It's happening in the violence to the earth that is ensuing through these wasteful and egotistical space jaunts. This is not wealth creation. Let's face it, the space wars that we've been seeing right now. It's a pissing contest between the world's richest. And to be very blunt about it, yes, I am a professor, but I like to speak uh, bluntly about issues when it's called for. Guess who's getting pissed upon? It's the little guy. The truth underlying the phrase, abolish billionaires, is a proud defense of that little guy's interests. Defend him from what my opponent wants which is your continued servility to the mega-rich. He wants you and the people that you elect to have no power to tax or to constrain them. He wants rule by the wealthy, whereas I think many people want an end to that rule. And to get there, we must abolish billionaires and their power.
3: Thank you both for those summaries of your cases. Just a reminder, at the start of the event... In the pre-poll, the audience voted 56% in favour of the motion and 11% against the motion to abolish billionaires and 11% were undecided. So we while we wait for the results to come up, I just want to thank both of our speakers. I think it's really, these debates can sometimes shed more heat than light, but I'd like to say, personally speaking, I got a lot more light than than I expected and than one often gets (laughs) from these debates. So thank you so much. I can announce the final results (laughs) and they are for the motion to abolish billionaires, 57% against 34%. Undecided, 9%. So four wins, 57%. And uh, Ryan... Ryan's motion did gain some percentage points but not enough to overturn the result so a very interesting result there that's that's brilliant so well all that remains to say is thanks again to Lindsay and Ryan for taking part uh, in an excellent debate thanks to you the audience for your brilliant questions I thought and thanks to Intelligence Squared for hosting